Good evening to you all. I'm Fiona Mountford and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all here for the second in the Lyric's new strand of studio talks. I shall be hosting a year-long programme of events with one talk inspired by each main house production and we got things off to a good start early this month with a talk around the themes of marriage and colonialism inspired by a doll's house. Now, as the gloriously relaunched lyric continues to soar, our attention turns to the skies, with David Gregg's fine adaptation of Stanislaw Lem's modern classic novel, Solaris. We're more used to seeing Solaris, and indeed the galaxy as a whole, on film, which is why tonight we are talking about staging outer space in theatre and film. We've got a cracking panel for you here to consider this question. Rachel O'Riordan is the artistic director of the vibrantly rebooted Lyric Hammersmith. Prior to her arrival in London, she was the artistic director of the Sherman Theatre in Cardiff. Will Massa is the curator of contemporary fiction in the BFI National Archive. His job is to ensure that contemporary British fiction film is represented in the National Collection. Brendan Owens has, I think, the most exciting job I've ever had the pleasure of introducing when I've hosted an event. He's an astronomer at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich. And even more helpfully for our purposes tonight, he's a big fan of science fiction and science fiction films. Alastair McDowell is an award-winning playwright known for the likes of Pomona at the Orange Tree and the National Theatre. His play X at the Royal Court was a rare drama that tackled the issue of space. It's a real pleasure to have the four of you with us tonight. Welcome. And before we start, perhaps we might have a show of hands. Who has seen this production of Solaris already? Okay, splendid. And who has tickets to see it later on in the run or tonight, perhaps? Okay, that's the majority of you. Splendid. All right, that's useful to know. So we'll try not to tell you that the butler did it. Um, Rachel, let's start with you. Why did you pick Solaris to be the second play of your inaugural season here at the Lyric? What, what are you saying with it? Well, um, I think there's, there's many reasons always to programme anything. Uh, uh, those decisions are, are you know, not one thing ever. But what's very special, one of the very special things about the Lyric Hammersmith Theatre is the auditorium that we have in the main house. Um, it has the capacity, I think, to transport an audience anywhere. So... There was something that we all felt here about this new season, um, this first season that I'm, I'm, I'm in charge of as artistic director, to really exploit that and to really and allow the audience to go on these massive imaginative journeys. So Doll's House was set in Calcutta in 1890, uh, 1879, sorry, and this is set in outer space. So it was partly to do with that. It was partly to do with... Um, a, with, with a real, I have a real relationship and a, uh, an admiration of David Gregg's work. Um, and also it was a really interesting co-production because there's three partners in this. There's us and the Lyceum in Edinburgh and the Malthouse Theatre in, in Melbourne. So it allowed us to programme it and it allowed us to make uh, financial decisions of, around it too. So to be really ambitious in the programming. So there's that. Um, and in a much less corporate answer, um, I was a bit unsure as to whether sci-fi on stage would work at all. So I was thinking, will anyone come and see this on stage? It does, is it a good idea? I don't know. I'm only, you know, I'm new, so I don't know this audience well yet. 
Um, so amongst some thinking and talking with my brilliant colleagues here and wondering about it, I also talked to my brother, who is very much a scientist. He's a, he's a psychiatrist. He's a neuropsychiatrist. So I said to him, Killian, what do you think to sci-fi on stage in general? And he went, mm, depends. I went, Solaris on stage. He went, fuck yes, are you doing that? And I went, yeah, well, yeah, I am now. <laughs> so like, there, was, there was a kind of a reaction that he had that was just to do with how, um, how exciting the concept was and the, the ambition of doing like, this classic play, this classic novel, um, and, and to see what it would be like. And I think that has actually been proven to be true he that he does seem to represent lots of thankfully lots of you who have been interested and intrigued by whether or not it's going to work yeah because so it's had so many other lives it's a book it's a it's two films it's three films actually but you know it's had it's already had this kind of it's it's got a full life already yeah before so you, it hit the stage so we have your brother to thank for a lot in large part yeah, for this one yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll unpick this in greater detail as we go on but i'd like to hear i think brief thought opening thoughts from all four of you as to why we overwhelmingly see outer space depicted on film rather than in the theater is it predominantly an issue of design the problem of zero gravity perhaps well let's start with you what do you think about that yeah, it's complicated. I, was, I, I enjoyed this production hugely, and I, as I settled down into my seat, I started thinking, what, what is it about the contract an audience has, or, or the set of expectations one brings to the theatre versus the set of expectations one brings to the, the cinema and the intensity of experience? And after I left, I thought, well, of course, there's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't be able to do something like Solaris on stage when you reduce it to its the, the quality of its ideas. Um, I think... The big screen and big sound experience has been particularly good uh, because of the sense of motion that cinema is so good at, yes. the sense of light speed, the sense of movement, the sense of panning down corridors and exploring space sort of in a, you know, within a craft of some sort, but also its expansiveness, film because of the nature of the medium, I suppose, is very good at honing in very specifically on small things and then panning back on very, very yeah. expansive arenas. So perhaps that's opened up that canvas. Um, but I think Solaris is interesting within the sort of sci-fi canon on, on, on film. I know it was the, the, novel was the, the novella was the inspiration in this instance, but in the film, the Tarkovsky film, is that it's not actually interested in the bells and whistles of space necessarily yeah. or, or, cra or craft it's interested in the massive massive existential ideas and the sort of religious uh, overtones and what it means to be human and there's you know i think as has been successfully proved here no reason you can't take those elements and and, and put them on stage and a lot of great sci-fi actually when you strip it back is 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 ideas driven yeah but it also comes with a lot of excitement around future visions of technology yeah Obviously, in the contemporary digital era, era VFX have played a, a, a massive role in helping to f create really immersive and yeah. detailed worlds that we can explore in great detail. And perhaps theatre doesn't have quite the luxury of that intimacy with the textures of, the, of, sure. of, the, of, the, of those worlds. Yeah. Okay, Alistair, what are your initial thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, I hope it works, because I did one set in space. Well, that was my very next question. In uh, I don't, I don't, there's, 
there's you can set a play anywhere. It doesn't matter. It's where where what where a play is, set what it's about. All of this stuff is almost irrelevant fundamentally. It's how anything's executed, and the basic. Uh, function of theatre is some people come into a room and some people go on a stage and some people go in seats and you all just imagine together. So if I tell you we're in space, as long as the story and the characters that back that up are interesting enough, then you'll just, you won't believe we're in space, but you'll believe that those people are in space. Yeah. You'll believe that the story's in space. Uh, it's, but saying that, when I was uh, writing this uh, uh, play, so I wrote this play called X, which is set on Pluto, uh, I didn't want to write a play set on Pluto because I knew uh, uh, people would think it was stupid. And I, I knew that, that people would have panels about whether it was worthwhile or not. You know, it's not... Uh, I, I, I didn't want to... I, I don't want to do that, you know. I, and, but ultimately, that was how that play had to come into life. That's what it needed to be. But, um, but I don't... To me, it's always been strange to me that there aren't more plays set under the ocean or in deserts or in space or in fantasy worlds or whatever because it's just a collective imagining that's the entire function of theater i've never understood why there aren't thousands of plays set all over the place um you know it's it's it has always seemed a bit of a moot point to me because i never Got, got what the sort of the problem was. The problem becomes slightly, if you're trying to uh, really do as you call like the bells and whistles, like that becomes an issue, but um, that is not so much a question as to can you do uh, a play set in space? It's like, to what extent can you do kind of proper science fiction set in space, uh, on stage? Because uh, I've written a play set on Pluto, but I haven't written a science fiction play. That play's got no interest in, um, in the actual science of that situation or the, the meaning of, of being on Pluto. That play's about memory and motherhood and loss and pretty earthbound ideas, really. Um, and, and, I don't, and I say that because I'm a fan of science fiction. I sort of know what it is, kind of really, you know. Um, so the question of, like, why there hasn't been more set in space, I don't know. I mean... Possibly also we have, we don't have as long an imaginative kind of, you know, store to draw on. You know, it's not, it's not something that has existed in kind of terms that we all sort of agree on for, for, for that long, really, you know. And it's also been ghettoized as pulp and crap and, you know, and stuff that's not worth anyone's, you know, spe you know things set in space or things with mystical creatures in or whatever, all of this stuff is just... It's only recently, really, that people have started, you know, writing PhDs on it and going, oh, actually, it's quite important, actually, you know? It's like people who've loved that stuff has known it's important for forever, so... I'm going to come back to you about your... Specifically about your play in a minute, but let's just... Brendan, let's just... The, the, the sort of opening thesis from you. Why have we overwhelmingly seen outer space on film rather than in theatre. What are your initial thoughts on that? It's, it's great having two people go before me on that one. I love that. <laughs> um, but I will touch on a few things because um, I think going back to Will and uh, the idea of um, special effects in particular yes. and just the idea of the motion picture in the early days, people were shock horror, trains coming towards me on a platform, that sort of thing. You know, you can't get a shinier bauble than thinking about the man on the moon or martians in a distant world and it's sort of um i think that that temptation to explore that dynamism first 
it's sort of it's almost like it's taken time to come back around to the fundamental stories that relate to characters and relationships okay. um, so it's just I think very initially quite tempting to, to go for the, the shiny thing straight away and, and that's probably where you end up as well with a lot of the, the pulp science fiction as well and mm-hmm. um, you know once somebody makes a, a, a monster movie of vampires on Mars or something <laughs> like that then there'll be another production of that and, and, mm-hmm. and it spirals and so, so films sort of indulge in its greater sort of technological <coughs> possibilities. Like I think, yeah. The food triangle of films yeah. or something. You've gone straight for the dessert, you know, and uh, you've missed all your, your important ingredients there. It's quite and nutritious value as well. Yes. Yeah, if it. it goes, and I think it's, it is right to try and find a different route, which David did, and I saw, I saw Alistair's play as well, that there's a different route so that you don't set up a set of anticipation or expectation for the audience that they're going to see something that can be done on film. That's not what you come to the theatre for, yeah. to see a special effect. Um, you, you come to be transported to, to wherever, wherever the play takes you. And I think that's, that's the difference. Is so, that, so we're not going to ever be able to compete with CGI in theatre, but that's not the point. We don't, we don't really want to either. That's, you know, so there, there is that different feel. I mean, there, there have been, of course, like lots of attempts to put sci-fi on stage or fantasy on stage that haven't worked because they've been too ambitious. Like there's a famous King Kong that didn't happen on Broadway because they couldn't get the monkey big enough you know, to, to satisfy what they thought the audience would want to see. And they just kept yeah. making it bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where they had to just stop because it, it was, you know, unsustainable. It just fell through the floor. So, you know, there is a kind of... You have to find a route, I think, with theatre that just doesn't compete with other mediums. It might be worth saying, as, well, as much as the, uh, the apocryphal story of people fleeing the cinema when the train came to them, there, from, from the birth of cinema, there was a sort of great schism between everyday representations of reality and then sci-fi and fantasy. So the, Meli- the, the Melier brothers' Voyage to the Moon is one of the earliest entertainment films, sort of about a rocket flying into the eye of the moon. The, the, the nature of the medium allowed trickery and, and uh, sort of fa- phantasmagorical happenings to appear, the nature of cutting allowed quick transportation yeah. from different places. So it's sort of it's sort of bound up in the history of the medium to a certain extent. And albeit drawing on the sort of high Victorian, you know, novel explosion of gothic <laughs> horror and sci-fi, etc. So Alistair, back to you and your play X, set on a research base in Pluto. So you you talked us given us some idea of that. Were there any specific challenges you faced because of the space angle, or were there the challenges of writing a play and getting a play? Well, well, did space give you any extra challenges? Um, I don't know. I knew it was going to close off a chunk of the audience from the off anyway, because I presumed that a bunch of them would just think it was daft and they wouldn't be able to buy into it. So I thought, well, I just thought, well, that's, you know... Did you think they'd buy a ticket to see whether they bought into it or oh, I don't not? Know. Or do I don't, know. Just I don't of... know anything about why people buy tickets for things, but I just figured okay. that a certain chunk would just go, I'd go, we're in Pluto, and they'd go, no, we're not, and that would be the end. You know? so, <laughs> I, I, so I wasn't, I just thought, well, that's a write-off, you know, that's fine. But I, no, not, I mean, also, it's tr- talking about any... There's nothing anyone's doing on stage that hasn't been done before and probably also been done by Carol Churchill before because, I mean, she's done a bunch of science fiction plays. She wrote a play set in space in the 70s, like a short that's not in print, but she did do one. Uh, there's like Rossum's Universal Robots, which is a place where we get the word robot from, you know. So I wasn't so much bothered about that. I will say, having seen the play a bunch of times in different places now, in different countries and things, um, it doesn't seem to work in a smaller room. Uh, 
Uh, oh, that might be unfair. I would say broadly, based just on the ones I've seen. And that's, it was very specifically written for a kind of stage like at the Royal Court, or like here as well, like how Rachel was talking before, like a pros arch. And a, and a, but the play I'd written before was in the round, very intimate, and I wanted to write something that was in a frame, you know? And there was something about giving a story that the audience holds at a distance like that and having physical space above the head. I write very carefully for the sort of architecture. I think the play is going to sit inside and that was definitely a play that was it was designed to be played in a in a bigish room. When you in a when you said to the theatre, I when you said to various people, I'm writing a play set in space. Did anyone say no? Please don't do that. That's not a good idea. No, I didn't else. tell them. I just didn't tell them. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I never tell anyone. I just turn up with it. You yeah. Turn up with it. So <laughs> yeah. There so we I, go. That's so why I probably don't get as many commissions as I would. <laughs> Brendan. So, uh, an astronomer, so exciting. I just have to, how much of your working week do you actually spend looking through a telescope? I think we're all, you know, <laughs> we're going to have to just get this out of the way, first of all. Not as much as I want to. I knew that was going to be your answer. But, uh, par part of it, though, is, is seasonal. So from November to, <laughs> the, to Do the to heavens February, sort of go on a holiday or something? It's, just, it's just a long, having to wait so long uh, for it to get dark. A, fine. It's just it's a, it's a real problem. But, okay. Uh, but so I do, I do still look through telescopes. Splendid. Yeah. Yeah. As an astronomer and a fan of science fiction, do you often find yourself watching a film set in space and thinking, no, they're getting it all wrong, this is just not at all how it is, they're giving people a misleading impression, this is absolute nonsense? Or do you think, generally, filmmaker, that you made a decent, decent go at that, that's all right? It, it really, it, it's hard sometimes to switch off. It's always the MacGuffin-y things that get me. <laughs> okay. If they, if they throw in a little bit of science in there and say it's some use of nanotechnology or... I don't know, um, a new quantum computer or something like that. It just, I, it drives me a bit mad because I'm then thinking about that too much. Okay. And I lose out on the thread of the story and the characters. So you, the specific so, inaccuracies annoy you. Yeah, yeah. but if, the, if you kind of settle some things pretty quickly, like you say, okay, um, they've got some mechanism. You're not really going to say what it is, but they've got gravity on their spaceship. Yeah. Fair yeah. enough, that's sorted. And you can go with that. That's <laughs> grand. That's absolutely fine. They don't spend much time outside the... The spaceship, so you don't get all the time. That's fine. That's sources. So if you could kind of get past those things and weirdly bring it into a medium again that you could you could put on stage, uh, it kind of it takes a little bit of uh, pressure off trying to <laughs> trying to tease out those details. So can you do you so slightly on edge if you're watching a film set in space as a professional you going oh I don't know and the the film loving you going oh I'm quite enjoying this. The, the worst thing is when we take team trips from the observatory and we decide as a bunch of oh, astronomers to go together. see films that's dangerous that's very dangerous yeah we just whisper in each other's ears and things like that and and debate it but then we'll come up with a whole new film at the end which has got everything fixed so that's that's fine <laughs> we never we never get it into production but we've got the idea i see the cinemas going oh no it's the astronomers again we're going to be in for a hard evening but but i would say it, give, it gives us great joy to be able to to tease those things out when we screen films at the observatory, for instance. So we'll we'll play with that and yeah. say, and sometimes, sometimes, you know, fact is stranger than fiction. And, and there are some weird threads from older movies that have become reality and things like that. So oh, that, that, that's really okay. interesting. So, yeah. yeah. And well, I, I guess a weird one, really weird tangential one, but there's, um, uh, there is a film called First Men in the Moon from the 1960s. And in it feature these, um, moon cows uh, and they're they're like giant uh, caterpillars but they look remarkably like uh, uh, a creature called a tardigrade 
these little indestructible um, organisms. And not that long ago this year, a couple of months back, uh, an Israeli uh, lander to the moon failed in its mission, crash landed on the moon, but these tardigrades are on the moon. Uh-huh. So this film, First Men in the Moon, set on the moon, had moon cows, albeit, you know, giant versions of these things, but little ones are now actually on the moon. Oh, there we go. They were, they were foretelling, they were, yes. they were predicting the future. There we go. What do we think are some of the best representations of outer space in popular culture? I'm Film-wise... I find myself perpetually drawn to Gravity, Alfonso Cuaron's Oscar winner, which was so elegant in its simplicity, but conveyed, I thought, so profoundly the terrifying enormity of space. And that scene where George Clooney, those of you who've seen it, just starts to drift free, and you realise, you knew it before, but you realise that actually it's infinite. He could drift infinitely. Um, so that always, I always think Gravity is one of my favourites. What, well, what would you say, Summer? Would you say the best? Oh God, sci-fi is so funny, isn't it? Because it's 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 often a genre buried actually inside the the sort of uh, the sort of skeleton of the setting. So I don't. I remember I like you say about gravity, the enormity. I remember a film um, called Contact. Do you remember a film called Contact, where there's a, a fantastic moment where, of course, on the panel being recorded, the actress has gone out of my head. Jodie Thank Foster. you very much. Where Jodie Foster is hurtled forward in what is basically a sort of tiny chair and just sort of confronts the enormity of space. And I had a similar feeling to you as gravity in that sense. But I often... Well, I, I suppose there's quite often a relationship between time and space in, in, in sci-fi that's, that, that's very interesting. And one of, the, uh, one of my favourite sci-fi films is sort of sci-horror called Event Horizon. Oh, yeah. And it's, <laughs> I like it because I think it, it's, it's... I watched it when I was about 15 and I was on my own. It was raining outside, it was really dark, and it really, really terrified me. Again, because of the quality of its its ideas and and its sort of relationship between time, travel, and space, I can't speak for the authenticity of the science. But in terms of sort of getting it right, it's really good. And I would say that that um, that Tarkovsky's uh, Solaris, well, is is you know, is a masterpiece. Um, but again, it's like it's sci-fi in its in its armory. But look like look under the hood a little bit, and actually, yeah. it's 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 a lot of other things too. So. Sorry. Uh, no, sorry. <laughs> it's 2001 is probably the best, isn't it, still, I think, probably? I mean, it's faultless movie, I think, almost. I don't know. I, I never liked... I mean, Tarkovsky, like, all his other movies would be in my top whatever. Solaris is the only one I don't like, because it seems to me it's a movie that he didn't really want to make that much, I have a slight sense, in that he wanted to make a different movie and had Solaris to sort of shuffle around. The whereas senses, whereas yeah. Stalker which is the, the, the science fiction he made later, he sort of achieved a thing where he's like, I want to make a science fiction film that has none of the trappings of science fiction. Like, and that, that seemed like... I mean, that's like a perfect movie, I think. But I think in terms of space and what we all imagine it to be, we're still basing it on... 2001 slash someone else's knockoff version of 2001. But they're often talked about in the same breath because they came out four years, about four years apart, and one was Soviet and one was American. You know, there's lots of things. But I, I, photo negatives of each of them. Well, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But 2001, I think, is there's no doubt about it, and it's a game changer. It sort of changed the mold of what was possible aesthetically, um, for a, in a very different way that, Salah, that Tarkovsky's influence in cinema. But I, I love 2000. 2001 because I can immerse myself in its visuals, but I find it to be a very cold and dispassionate yeah, yeah. 
film relative to Solaris, which is in t deeply romantic, actually, and sort of spiritual. Anyway, that's just fine. Rachel, what would you... Oh, no, I just think, as, a, as, a, yeah, as human beings, we are fascinated. There's something that science fiction does, and, and even films like... No, this doesn't probably count, but I, a film called The Abyss, which is mm. about, you know, kind of, a, it's a... And a, taking an audience, be it on a theatre audience or a film mm. audience, away from what they know, allows us to interrogate and imagine the things that we are being shown in a, in a way that sort of allows us to release ourselves of the domestic, the domestic and the normal. And I think a lot of sci-fi sort of is really about human relations. Loyalty is a huge theme in sci-fi. Like even when I was a little girl watching Star Trek with my dad, you know, it was always the, the, the end of it was always about some kind of moral dilemma. And for some reason, it seems to uh, sci-fi and things set in space seem to attract that conversation. So that it's about how human beings let each other down or don't, about how we manage to deal with each other in often quite challenging circumstances where we feel unsafe and where we're kind of exposed as a kind of almost like a Shakespearean kind of unaccommodated man. You know, you're, you don't have any trappings that are of our world, so you're reliant on yourself and therefore each other. Yeah. And I think that comes through all the time in, in that genre. And I think that is probably why, in, in a way, it is, it is quite an interesting world to present on stage, any sort of dystopian world, sci-fi, anything that takes us out of what we know allows us to interrogate differently what we know inside ourselves, I yeah. think. Yeah, that's, I think that's very, Brendan, what? Well, it, it's, it's tricky when picking out, because, you know, coming back to the question, it was sort of about the the, the best portrayal of space. Yeah, sense. what would you, and, yeah, what would you, and, what would... It's it's difficult because I always go to what I enjoy. Yeah, and well, even though I've already sort of like uh, put forward saying I get too wrapped up in gadgets and gizmos and get distracted, Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan is still my go-to <laughs> favorite film. But that that comes back to there's there's moral dilemmas, there's characters, and I get totally sucked in. But it's also accompanied by a space battle in a nebula. And the fact is, I could go look at the Orion Nebula through a telescope and imagine there's ships out there and that sort of thing. Yeah. Just have a bit of fantasy to it. it it's great. Uh, but, but if I go the other way and go a little bit more from my background, I end up snapping back to 2001. Right. Um, and I think I am... Uh, it's sort of... It's tainted, not tainted, it's the wrong word, but influenced by um, having read more about the behind the scenes of the making of the film and how right. immersed Kubrick got in the science. How much reading he did. And okay. it's not necessarily, at one point they were you know, going to do, uh, preface the film with effectively a documentary to help the audience understand <laughs> the content of the film. And Kubrick, pretty quite rightly, from an artistic perspective, well, we can't have that. It's going to, to totally change the, the consumption of the film. Yeah. Um, but you have this immersion and it still shows. So you don't necessarily have to bring it up, but it's, it's a rich layer, a rich foundation yes. that strengthens the film as a whole. I think this is something we've, we've all touched on in this, in the answer to that question. So let's, let's think about this a bit more. Does setting a piece of art in outer space somehow make it easier to introduce the big philosophical questions at the point and purpose of human existence? So I think that's what we're all, Rachel in particular, your answer you picked up on. And I... I personally, science fiction, I've always felt slightly, I don't, I don't understand the rules. I didn't watch Star Wars when I was little. I'd never watched Doctor Who. I, and if I look at them now, I think I don't understand the rules. But then that's why something such as gravity really stayed with me because I don't understand the rules. I've no idea how these people got to wherever they were going. 
but it was the basic human dilemma, the, the issue, the loneliness, the connection, that broke through me not knowing the rules and absolutely stayed with me, the big, the big questions. So do, does outer space lead to the big questions? Well, what do you... Go outer space to look back at the Earth, right? You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. Um, I'm going to say something heretical off the map to, make you, to maybe make you feel better, which is that I think that Star Wars isn't really something. No, it's not. I think it's sort of space opera adventure yeah. in space. Okay. So don't worry about that. But um, <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't worry about. I was going to leave that. But yeah. I was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I made some very angry people, very angry people in the audience now. Um, I think so much about so much about it is this sort of it does it loneliness works so well in space because it's a sort of vacuum and that works maps sort of tracks metaphorically neatly onto the idea of what we're dealing with in inner space. But so often sci-fi is about exploring something that might allow us to start again um, yeah. and and I think there's always something thinking oh, what would it be like to sort of start a new life it's in the play that we've just seen for example someone chooses to start again in, in, in after a fashion by not doing the obvious thing of returning home but it's yeah so much about it is about exploring worlds that would allow us to potentially redeem ourselves in some way yeah. to, to move away from the fall of um, human humankind so I guess yes it is dealing with those big meaty subjects inherently um but like i say there are so many sort of subgenres within the within the genre you know the 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 2001 is very much intimately before it before it sort of enters its lsd third act it's intimately bound up in the conversation about artificial intelligence and uh, which is a very live conversation here on earth right now so it sort of depends on the piece but yes i think you know massive canvas on which to paint human anxiety basically um, rachel you said something very striking i think then you said when you're stripped of everything you know, you're forced to look at what you know. And so it's sort of, it's if you don't know the rules, but it's what's inside you, what... That. What's inside you and, and, and that. Imagine how, you know, this is what it, I used to be quite... It, it's quite fascinating to imagine what it might be like to be on a spaceship and Alistair's play X really explores this. And, and, and to be with these people, you take off, and I think we're intrigued as human beings about what that might feel like. You're there and there's no going back. We can't leave if you're in outer space, you're there on this spaceship or on this, and you have to, so the, what if somebody is a liar? What if somebody has misrepresented themselves? What if they're, what if they're evil? That, the, so the whole stakes just raise right up. So that makes for good drama, but I think it also makes for good moral discourse. And as Alison says, if you're looking back at Earth, there's a kind of a broader philosophical question about what are we doing? What are we doing to the earth? What are we, what are we doing about? Our, or who are we in this? If, if it's perspective for sure to, to look out of the window and, and look at a planet that you used to be on and felt like all the world and you realise it isn't. There is literal and metaphorical space to really think about yeah. these things. But I think so there's a micro level where it's just frankly probably terrifying to think that I'm going to be on this really small spaceship, comparatively small spaceship or uh, uh, vehicle for years perhaps with these people who I have to trust yeah. um, and then macro is like what, who am I as a, as a human being and what am I doing to this planet what did I do to it have I contributed have I not yeah. um, and, and being able to see it I think is a, is a brilliant point that to, to really contextualise so I think we, we sort of agree the best science fiction or space you sort of you, you get through the MacGuffins and the slightly complicated bit to a point of really refined simplicity don't you the big the big distilled down questions. I was just because I think the best science fiction film made in the last however long is a uh, Russian movie called Hard to Be a God, which is based on a, 
a Russian science fiction novel called Hard to Be a God, which is about another planet like ours exactly, except it's hundreds of years in the past and they're stuck in the Dark Ages. So there's not a single moment in that film where you see any kind of technology. It just looks like a medieval film, but it's science fiction. It's just uh, science fiction. I just, it's just a lens to look at now. It's the same reason yeah. people write set things set in the future just to look at now. Yeah. Set things set out in space just to look at Earth. You know, it's just it's the equivalent of just standing back a bit and just doing that. You know, it's uh, it is. There was, there was a film that popped out of my mind actually, or left my mind that I totally forgot. Is Sunshine, um, oh, yes, which yeah. kind of ties into that search for self. I, I just I, I also love a film that sort of is a bit two partery as well. It becomes it actually gets more into horror towards the end. Okay. Um, but it's it's got that thriller aspect. But this is a journey of human beings going to our star, which gives life to Earth to try and um, reignite it. Bad science. Warren Cox was the <laughs> supervisor for it, but he had like a just a little MacGuffin that was theoretically possible, but yeah, but <laughs> an acceptable MacGuffin. <laughs> acceptable, it was fine. Um, but it was that idea of people people being together and voyaging together, and you know, characters were sitting in this room, you know, admiring the sun, and 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 some people getting absolutely fixated with that as well. Yeah. Um, but you know, you're trying to help the human race, sure. um, but you're maybe going to your own demise and. Uh, so there's a human struggle in there. Sure. So, well, so we, we've discussed... So Solaris is a 1961 novel. It's given rise to many cultural incarnations. As Rachel said, it's been filmed three times, most notably by Tarkovsky and Steven Soderbergh. It's been turned into an opera no less than four times. How do we explain the enduring popularity of Solaris? It's just good. It's just good. <laughs> I don't think, I think that's good. It's just good. It's really well written. It's a good story. It's moving. It's sad. It's a bunch of questions you can ask yourself. After, you know, it's. I don't. I think the reason things last forever and ever is never that complicated. It's just because it's really good. That's all. Like, and it's clearly niggling at some kind of question that no one can really answer. So we just have to keep making it over and over and over again to sort of see. I don't think we can beat the answer of it's just good. I think that's... (laughs) It's it's that beautiful, beautiful marriage of... of, sort of like what it what it is to indulge in nostalgia which is both happy and and poignant simultaneously um which is you know hard to write and hard to make it's it's when you look at it why it endures it's it's the reasons are simple but the 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 execution of them is i think is very very difficult but it also is if you just sort of strip away the the sentiment the plot is is fantastic the 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 the, the intrigue of what's going to come next as a, as a spine to move the story along, which people have chosen to do in different ways. You know, whichever way you cut it, if you keep that basic spine the same, it's really intriguing. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's that great marriage of plot and, 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 and theme, I guess. Yes, sure. Yeah. Some, in this version, those of you who've seen it will know, but it's no, no plot spoilers to say, there's some intriguing gender switching going on in this stage version with the central character, central character psychologist Chris Kelvin's now a woman rather than a man. Talk us through that, Rachel. Why? That? That, was, that was David's idea of the playwright. That was his idea, but it fitted... Um, it was very exciting to me that that was, that was the case. Um, uh, it absolutely stops... I mean, David's whole play doesn't do this anyway, but the, 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 if you like, the visitors, as they're called, who come to the... Um, I don't want to give too much away if you haven't seen it, but the visitors that come to uh, the, the characters are to do with um, regret often, and, you know, I, I imagine lots of us 
would, would relate to that. If we could turn back the clock, would we, do, would we do something different? If we could see somebody that we loved again, would we say something to them that we didn't get the chance to say? Um, yes, I think, is, is often the answer to that question. And I think that Solaris and David's version, David Gregg's version, really taps into that very simple human kernel that if any of us could have another day with somebody that we loved, there are probably things that we would say that we didn't. And I think that's heartbreaking, and I think this, that, that that is really at the core of, of what he's exploring. Um, now, that's not to answer your question about why it's a woman, but I think this kind of in there somewhere um, that, that he wanted to expand the... Um, the idea underneath that character, not in any way to say that a man couldn't feel those things, and of course they do, and that's not the point, but he wanted to make, uh, I think, himself as a playwright and the audience look at that again. Um, and I won't spoil for you who haven't seen it what Chris's decision is, but she does make a very bold decision about what to do about that, about that, that relationship. Um, I think... Yeah. yeah, and also, I mean, in really, I mean, you know, for those of you who are interested in this kind of thing, all of the plays in our current season here at Ulrich are um, led by female actors. So all of the all of the plays um, are have a central have a, have a lead female narrative. Good. Any any thoughts on the gender switching from put the men on the spot here? No, this is all right. <laughs> You've got no problem with it. <laughs> um, I like to again. My reference point is, is primarily my comparative reference point. I suppose is primarily uh, the, the Tarkovsky film, which I think uh, you know is not guilty of objectification per se. But uh, certainly, the function of one of the characters is is, is a muse like. Imaginary, and that has that is a trope across art. The the sustenance from which male characters draw their inspiration yeah. or well-being, and there are levels of agency that those characters have. And I think, uh, it, to some extent, in the play, the, the the agency has been upped for that character, and also the genders have been switched in a way that I think is just you know it's it's it, it, yeah it's, it's great yeah it's great why not? Can we agree on a few? definite do's and don'ts when it comes to culture depicting outer space. So there are a few things we can agree on. I, for example, am averse. I have a particular aversion to the portentous voiceover that too often bogs things down. And the recent Brad Pitt film, Ad Astra, was not entirely blameless in this regard, I think. Two things we definitely should... Brendan, let's start with you. You look like you're a man who bursting. What, what, what shouldn't culture do? Let's start negatively. Let's start <laughs> oh. with the don'ts. Okay, and I, I'm going to go very, I guess, you know, bare bones with it and say yeah. if you have an airlock in a film, yeah. you get in, you don't suddenly drop to the floor and get air for the, at the same time. It's just <laughs> a very weird thing. It's like get the air but still float until you get to your... Your gravity boots or whatever, or your spinning section of the spacecraft. Is that that's a thing, gravity thing. boots? Uh, is that an actual, or is it a film uh, thing? It's, it's a film, a thing. Thing. film oh, thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, usually in space, in spacewalks, they'll just have traditional ropes and little, you know, bits okay. to tip onto. But gravity boots school. just have more fun. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. <laughs> We'd like. Okay, it's um, so airlock. And, and the other big one is uh, anybody blasting off into space, you know, takes helmet off, they don't instantly freeze and die. <laughs> so you don't have that it looks terrific when someone goes frozen and then a, you know, a piece of the spacecraft smashes into their face and it explodes and it looks great um, 
but it still it still could be quite terrifying without that you get like really 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 bad sunburn and all the water all the sweat and, and water in your eyes and on the surface of your skin will boil uh, with the reduced pressure so it'll still be pretty nasty and effective <laughs> you know you don't need to have the other bit and um, it just just heat radiates away I mean, you're sort of putting yourself out for a scientific advisor to any new big sort of science <laughs> but you it, can yeah. sort out if you Alistair, any don'ts definite don'ts uh i don't know it's again just a question of execution it's if in a if i was watching apollo 13 i wouldn't want people leaping around space shooting each other with lasers but if i was watching wrath of khan i'd be a bit annoyed if they were <laughs> adhering to the laws of physics like i'm not it's just <laughs> i'm just it's sto story dependent to me to be honest i don't know if i've got any specifics yeah somebody once i was watching a science fiction film with somebody and they got very vexed that somebody wanted to carbon carbon test gold and they just harumph for the whole thing and i had it had to be explained to me why this was just so bothersome but you can't carbon test gold it turns out will any don't uh any don'ts i think might be probably a bit boring and pious but uh in cinema at least space exploration and Conquering has been quite a white male preserve. It's been quite a, a thrusting colonialist impulse, I think. And perhaps, you know, we can we can move away from that and uh, and you know m mix it up a bit. It's often bound up with the with the sort of I think male desire to plant flags and uh, control the outer limits of everything. So uh, okay, that's just, so that's just the history. So I think culturally moving forward, more gender more gender swapping. So the stage version, in fact, leading the way. Yeah. Yeah. Rachel, any don'ts with... I wouldn't know. Okay. I'm, I'm no specialist. Just don't make it boring. No, no don't make it... That's a particularly good don't. So what... Do, so, OK, so let's be positive now. So when we're depicting outer space on film or in the theatre, what are the do's? What are the definite do's? What should you definitely do? Rachel, sorry, I'm back uh, to you. Okay. I feel like I'm putting you on the spot again. Uh, again, uh, I would just say, like all theatre, just be bold in your choices. Don't worry, don't, you know, d d Frank McGuinness, is a brilliant playwright, said to me one time, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. So I think there is a kind of, there is a kind of, a, 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 you have to accept that theatre is for, you know, for imagination and so it's film, so, so don't, don't get hidebound by the detail i would say otherwise you'll probably not be able to do it at all any do's brendan I, it is kind of get to get to the characters you know yeah. get to you can use a trope <coughs> and get there but don't get too wrapped up in the tropes and yes. the spectacle it, it does fundamentally you will enjoy the experience more to to get, to get those relationships yeah. uh, and perspectives and they will still be um perspectives on the spectacular yeah um but you're not lost in that <laughs> I've got a friend who says uh, he always go to sci well, see a sci-fi film because in his mind it's already plus two points before it's even started <laughs> just because it's set in space. And I was talking, I said, I'm coming to do this thing. And I said, why is that? Why is it? And we were, we were discussing it. There, are, there is a sort of beautiful ready-made package of dramatic tension there, quite often well explored between, between the claustrophobia uh, of being in a relatively small thing, and then the vast expanse of a of a p potentially lethal um, outside environment that is sort of ready made for drama. And then just choosing how to how interesting to be and what to pour into that space yes. is good. But the mold is inherently sort of dramatic and fascinating. I think oh, so. Yeah. So just don't get that bit wrong. If you could just start with that nice base layer, you probably you know you can work from there. Any any definite do's and stuff? No, I, mean, I wouldn't want to say any artist do's or don'ts because of some sort of genre thing. I think it's just just 
do not worry about do's and don'ts, I would say, probably. So I think, uh, I don't know, I, you know, there's, there's, it's endle there's endless scope, I think. I don't think there needs to be so many rules and things, I think, yep. you know. I like that. Don't worry about the do's and don'ts. I want to ask one more question, and I know we're running out of time, so it's just, this, this won't take long to answer. Is Solaris out there? Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at the astronomer. I feel like, well, Brendan, you're always in my gaze. Is I, I, I'm going to actually, it's almost like I've practiced this a little bit because I did do a podcast oh. uh, <laughs> with, with that question in, in mind oh. recently. But, but there's, there's one thing that comes up in this production, again, harks back to the science, which I think is really nice, is they show what the system is meant to look like, a two-star system with a planet that doesn't orbit one of the stars each or go around both stars, but does a figure-eight orbit. And, and technically, it's, it's physically possible for a short period of time because it's quite difficult to go from one gravitational well to another one and to keep coming back around again and not get gobbled up or to go around into a, a bigger orbit. But the problem we have, and one of the wonderful things we have, is that most detections of planets that are out there in the distant, around distant stars were detect them by a wink of a star. Um, there are beautiful pieces of concept art out there and imaginations about what it's like. And we are just at the cusp now of being able to build better pictures of these brilliant worlds, but just to the point where we've got a, a basic chemical description. So there's still plenty of room for imagination and, and wonder and fascination. I don't think we're going to get a better answer than that. I think we'll take that as the actual right answer to that question. There's so much here that we can talk about, but I'm sure many of you are keen to head into space to watch the actual play now. We're going to have to wrap things up. So all that remains for me to do is to thank you all very much for coming to this second studio talk. And of course, to thank our guests, Rachel O'Riordan, Will Massa, Brendan Owens and Alastair McDowell. The next studio talk in connection with the forthcoming production of Faustus, That Damned Woman, will be on Tuesday, February the 18th. Thank you very much.